Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Coming up on the Science Revolution, Nick Dearden is here with Global Justice Now. Should America have a people's vaccine? Nick is calling for an immediate suspension of patents on COVID-19 vaccines and an international plan to ramp up production as rapidly as possible. Barry C. Lynn from Open Markets Institute drops by on how monopolies have created a crisis in the food industries. Zach Corrigan is here from Food and Water Justice on how pork slaughter plants with self-inspection rules are not working well and endangering our health. Stay tuned. Nick Dearden is on the line with us, the director of Global Justice Now. He's a regular contributor to The Guardian and other news outlets. He's the author of a book called Trade Secrets and founder of the UK's Stop Trump Coalition. The website, globaljustice.org.uk, and you can tweet Nick at either Global Justice UK or Nick Dearden, D-E-A-R-D-E-N 75. Nick, you're writing about or your organization is talking about a people's vaccine. We've got the world desperately in need of 7 to 14 billion doses of vaccine. We've got literally hundreds or thousands of companies all around the world in various countries and dozens of them here in the United States that routinely manufacture vaccines, but they're not manufacturing COVID vaccines because our patent laws are restricting it to a few relatively small number of companies that are making some really serious money on this. What's wrong with this picture? At the moment, what we're looking at is some really serious inequality as to who has any chance at all of getting a vaccine within the next few months and those who don't. And if you look at where the vaccines have all been bought and where they're going to, surprise, surprise, Huge numbers have been bought by rich countries. Huge numbers of people in southern countries, in the developing world, haven't even sniffed a vaccine. I mean, there was a report out recently saying that many countries may not be able to vaccinate their population until 2024. So this is really frightening. Some people are calling this a vaccine apartheid. And really, like you say, at the heart of the problem that we've got here is our government, your government and my government, particularly, but other European governments too, have put all of their faith in a handful of extremely wealthy and really rather dysfunctional multinational corporations. And they are now deciding through the enormous bulk sales they're doing with governments, who gets this vaccine and who doesn't. And what's the remedy for that? How do we engage in that remedy if it's licensing cheaply or even ignoring the patent as probably, you know, North Korea is doing right now? And in some cases, we've seen with some really important drugs, even countries like India have done in the past. How do you protect this notion that there has to be some substantial profit in the development of a new drug or people aren't going to bother to do it? 
Well, yeah, it's really interesting that people think that putting an enormous, uh, the ability of pharmaceutical corporations to monopolize this drug for the next 20 years at least and make huge profits from it during that time. I know some companies have said they won't profit during the pandemic, and of course that's welcome, but they hold this patent for decades, and these drugs may well be needed, unfortunately, for a very long period of time. That's the system we have at the moment, and what that essentially does is artificially limit the ability of others to make it. So absolutely most countries around the world don't have the ability to make this at the moment. Even most companies and manufacturers in our own countries don't have the ability to make it because only the company that owns the patent can produce and license production if it wants to. So we're limiting the supply. And what we're saying is you need to strip that away. The idea of a people's vaccine really goes back to some early discoveries of vaccines, you know, like the very famous example of the polio vaccine that was invented decades decades ago now. And when the inventor of that was asked, are you going to patent it? He said, well, can you patent the sun? In other words, this is a public good. This is absolutely vital for the health of all of us worldwide. And the idea that can be owned by a very rich multinational corporation who then decides who gets it and who doesn't is wrong. And it's even, it gets even worse than this, because actually these companies are so dysfunctional that in order to be encouraged to do the research they need to do, for example, on the coronavirus vaccine, Scene. Our governments have given them huge amounts of money, have given them huge incentives and have essentially bought their entire supply in most cases for the next year. So this is a people's vaccine. This has been discovered with public money. You've probably heard about the AstraZeneca vaccine. That's the vaccine that was discovered here in, um, in Britain. That was discovered by Oxford University, a public institution with loads of public money put in, allowing them to come up with that. It's just so wrong that you can then privatise, essentially privatise that knowledge, hand it over to big business and allow them to decide what profit they're going to make on it, who can buy it, who can produce it into the foreseeable future. We're saying, no, it's just wrong. First of all, we paid for this. But frankly, the situation we're facing now as, as a human race is far too serious to allow these big corporations to simply monopolize and profit from that knowledge. We, we want to collaborate. We want to share this knowledge. We want open source science, technology and patents so that we can produce this everywhere around the world that we possibly can as rapidly as we possibly can. And that's what we mean by a, by a people's vaccine, a very different way of thinking about the production of medicines and understanding how important they are, especially in this awful pandemic to the lives and livelihoods of all of us around the world. As Jonas Salk did with the polio vaccine, as uh, I forget the name of the guy who discovered insulin, he gave it away. We're talking with Nick Dearden, the director of Global Justice Now. Nick, are you seeing any motion in this direction? I mean, it, it seems to me that the biggest point to make is that we know that this uh, virus is mutating rapidly. The South African variant seems particularly nasty. And the reason it's mutating rapidly is because so many people have it. There's so many Petri dishes around there for mutation. And therefore, Setting aside the patent laws while in some way protecting the profits of some of these large companies, you know, or at least not injuring them, seems like a national public health imperative. We have about 45 seconds to the break. What should we do and is there any motion anywhere in the world to do it? 
there really is huge movement on this and it's really exciting. So I don't want people to get down by how big this is because we have the kind of movement now that we haven't seen for 20, 25 years since back in the days of the anti-globalization movement. We have countries as powerful as India and South Africa coming to the World Trade Organization and saying we demand that you halt the application of international patent law, of international trade law that prevents us being able to get hold of and produce this vaccine. And they are supported by almost every southern government in the world. It is it is only governments like, like mine and yours that are holding out against this proposal at the moment. So there is everything to fight for. This is a really exciting time. And I believe we can make serious inroads into actually getting the kind of people's vaccine that we need. And I really urge people to get involved in the campaigns in their own countries who are watching this and make this happen. Great. And you can find out all about it at globaljustice.org.uk. Nick Dearden, the director. Nick, thanks a lot for dropping by. It's great talking to you again. That's a pleasure. This is the Tom Thank Hartman you. Program. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Barry C. Lynn is with us. He's the director of the Open Markets Institute. He's got a new book out, Liberty from All Masters. OpenMarketsInstitute.org is the website. Barry C. Lynn, L-Y-N-N, is his Twitter handle, or at Open Markets. And uh, Barry, welcome back to the program. It's always great to hear from you. Uh, you are off on a new on a new hunt here with this brilliant science piece. You know, this whole idea that the food monopolies are creating a crisis. I've talked many times in this program about how, you know, when Reagan stopped enforcing the monopoly laws back in 1983, that this led to a disaster in family farms. Friends who had family farms in Michigan back in the day, and, you know, Willie Nelson was up there doing farm aid, trying to help these people out because these giant ag businesses were just running them out of business. Apparently, there's a new problem. Tell us about it. The problem now is the, the consolidation of power over our agricultural systems, our farm systems, our food systems. You know, we've been approaching it mainly as an issue of you know, how it affects the ownership. You know, it's like who gets to be a farmer or who gets to sort of own land. And, and those are still extremely important issues that we are fighting with on a day-to-day -day basis all across this country. But there's this other problem, which we're actually just really starting to focus on now in a, in a, in a, in a 
real way, which is the way in which consolidated agriculture affects the environment, affects our our lives. I mean, uh, one of the things that our group did this year, Open Markets, is we did a bunch of work just looking at how consolidation in the slaughterhouse industry uh, contributed to the COVID epidemic in a number of ways. And actually, so this is a, I mean, people have looked at this somewhat, but uh, this is a, a new frontier for really sort of both fighting, understanding monopoly, the dangers of it, and fighting monopoly. And you're suggesting that Joe Biden specifically do something about this, that this can be done by executive action, and I'm assuming legislation? Yeah, absolutely. Legislation, you know, Congress is, the people are uh, sovereign through Congress. We can kind of do what we want, as you know. But Mm -hmm. the executive has immense power to change this. The Department of Agriculture has, and this is something we've forgotten, the Department of Agriculture, going back to the 1920s, has immense rulemaking authority. It it can essentially create markets, establish markets, regulate markets as it sees fit. And that means that if it wants to make sort of essentially outlaw Tyson's, if it wants to outlaw JBS, if it wants to outlaw Smithfield, it can do so. Tom Vilsack, who's a new head of the Department of Agriculture, he can do so. Uh, and there's uh, so, I mean, that's something that our group has looked at in great depth, which is the rulemaking authority of the executive. And people should remember that Tom Vilsack was Secretary of Agriculture under, uh, under Obama for eight years, during which time he did nothing to fight monopoly right. and pretty much everything he could to sort of foster further consolidation. Well, I've heard him described as the man from Monsanto. I don't know if that's a a reasonable description, but it seems unlikely that he would ban any of these companies. But, you know, the FCC, for example, used to have local ownership rules around radio and television stations that many people are calling for a return to. to, That would effectively, from the bottom up rather than the top down, I guess, would uh, break up these giant monopolies that only program right-wing talk radio. Would it not be possible to do something like that? I mean, what are the specifics of policy that you'd like to see put into place that would protect the family farm and also perhaps minimize the massive environmental damage, both locally in terms of waste and globally in terms of emitted uh, methane, that's being done by these massive hog, beef, and chicken operations that are owned by this small handful of very wealthy companies? Yeah, and actually just simply moving towards a more diversified, more distributed farming system, actually, you know, the small family farms, just moving physically towards a system that reinforces the small family farm, that immediately begins to deal with a lot of the environmental problems because you're actually distributing waste. You're distributing you know, across the landscape. You're not concentrating it in a couple of places. You're not putting all this amazing stress on a couple of uncertain sort of water supplies, uh, you know, under certain parts of our country. But how do you do that? Again, it's like, you know, we can do this legislatively. Uh, Tom Vilsack can begin to do this tomorrow. As soon as he sits down in that seat, he can begin to use the power that was put into the USDA by Congress for precisely crises such as this. Now, you say, well, is he going to do it? Well, Tom Vilsack has shown no inclination whatsoever to actually do it. But the Biden administration, we've seen a lot of good action, a lot of good intent on their part in actually dealing with monopoly. 
They seem to be elevating a number of very good people in different positions across the executive. So there are people in the White House who we are pretty confident have uh, some inkling of how bad the situation is. And so there, there is an opportunity here for the White House, for Joe Biden, basically to call his friend Tom Vilsack and say, Tom, why don't you really start to use your power and fix this? Yeah. What's the appropriate response to this? Is it to say no a livestock operation can have more than a thousand animals or that no uh, agricultural operation can be bigger than a thousand acres? I mean, where? how do you do it? What's the entry point? Well, you know, in the old days, it's like every farm was about 160 acres. You know, it's actually, this is one of the very first laws in the United States, the Northwest Ordinance. That's what we plotted out the land. We cut it into 160 acre sections. I mean, quarter sections. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that uh, right up for 200 years, we still had farms that were basically about 160, 200 acres. That's one quarter uh, of know, a square so mile, get, isn't it? Isn't a square mile 640 yeah. acres? Yeah. We can actually begin to do this right now just sort of by limiting the power of the processors. The the processors, it's actually the the retailers and the processors are the ones that have exercised power over the farming system that has resulted in this pressure on farmers to consolidate, this pressure that has driven thousands, tens of thousands, millions of farmers off their land. So what we've seen is this mass expropriation of American farmers, this mass dis, uh, dis, uh, sort of displacement of American farmers, and we can reverse that now. The power is in Biden's hands, and for the first time, I think we have a president who understands that he can do this. We'll see if he does. That's great. The uh, White House comment line, by the way, is 202-456-1111. Barry C. Lynn, the director of the Open Markets Institute, his new book, Liberty from All Masters. Barry, thanks. So let's do a deep dive into some science having to do with our food supply. Zach Corrigan, the senior staff attorney with Food and Water Justice, program of Food and Water Watch and Food and Water Action. Food and A-N-D, waterwatch.org is the website. Corrigan Zach is the Twitter handle at Food and Water. Zach, welcome back to the program. Tell us about what we're discovering on pork and the so-called self-inspection rules. As you probably recall, in 2019, the Trump administration radically rolled back government inspections in swine slaughter plants. This is where most Americans get their pork, and they rolled it back by transferring critical inspection activities to the plant employees themselves. No mandatory training, no standards, while allowing the slaughter plants to increase their line speeds without limits. And consumer groups, not surprising, like ourselves, sued. And last week, what we introduced in our case was newly acquired evidence showing that the plants that were piloting these new rules had nearly doubled the violations for fecal matter and digestive contents on carcasses in the years leading up to the Trump administration's finalizing of the new system. So, in other words, the Trump administration said to the, to the people who are slaughtering pigs, you can have your own oversight. We're not going to provide oversight to you. And now more and more of the pork that is showing up in our supermarkets and in our restaurants and whatnot is what, covered with pig poop? I mean, basically, is that the bottom line here? 
Yes, a topic only fitting for radio. What this data shows is that the swine slaughter plants that were left to police themselves under the Trump administration's new inspection rules had more fecal matter and digestive content that ends up in the food we eat. Wow. So who is doing what about this? I mean, was this an executive action taken by Trump himself or or an action, you know, just a rule change done by what would it be, the USDA or how did this happen and how does it get reversed? It was a rulemaking that was finalized in 2019 under the USDA. And this is a rule that we then had to sue on. And it's there's currently three lawsuits challenging the rules, not only ours, which challenges the rules because of the impact to consumers, but also animal welfare organizations are bringing have brought a lawsuit and so have workers because of the effects of line speeds on worker safety. The new administration is going to have to decide what to do in these lawsuits. And we would strongly urge them to relook at these rules and go back to the drawing board. Yeah, or at least go back, default back to where we were before Trump came in and messed things up. Is there any evidence that this is a priority for the Biden administration or for the Department of Ag? That's Tom Vilsack, right, who just got confirmed? He was confirmed. And we know that this rulemaking is on their radar screen. Um, I will tell you that President Biden himself at a town hall in 2020 says, whether it's cattle, whether it's beef, whether it's pigs, whether it's chicken, they're moving down the line faster and faster to increase the profit rates. People are getting sick and people are getting hurt. So Biden understands what's going on. And we're hoping that Mm -hmm. then this USDA, which is deeply entrenched bureaucracy captured by the meat industry itself will review these rules under Mr. Biden's guidance. Remarkable stuff. And what can people who are listening or watching right now do to be activists in this realm to, you know, clean up our food supply and reduce the probability of, you know, unethical or inhumane slaughter and reduce the probability that more and more of these workers in these plants are going to lose fingers and limbs and whatnot because of the speeding up the lines? Great question. I think there are a number of avenues. I think that under the new Senate, these rules will be, and other rules will be looked at that govern um, these slaughter plants, which were a vector of COVID-19 in the last year. So they can certainly call their elected representative, House House member and uh, senator, and, and say that they want action on this. And then We're hoping that the administration reverses the prior administration's course. And if that's the case, there'd be opportunity for the public to weigh in and provide comment. Great. Okay, Zach Corrigan, the senior staff attorney with Food and Water Justice, part of foodandwaterwatch.org and uh, Twitter handles Corrigan Zach, Z-A-C-H. Zach, thanks a lot for dropping by. It's, It's great talking with you and you're always so informative. I appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.